Welcome to Nostalgia, the pop culture podcast where we have deep conversations about superficial things. I'm your host, Nicole Tremaglio, and each week my guests and I deep dive on the parts of pop culture that made them who they are today. If you like the show, please follow, rate, and review on your platform of choice. Watch us on YouTube and Spotify, and subscribe to our super fun newsletter at nostalgia.substack.com. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nostalgia. Today we're talking about a subject I love. Nostalgia isn't back, it never left. If you're listening to the episode, thank you for being here. For the full effect, watch us on YouTube or Spotify for a lovely presentation that serves as a visual for the topics we'll go over today. Before I begin, I'm gonna need you to stop calling everything nostalgia when you mean nostalgia. The former is the fondness or longing for your or society's past that you experienced firsthand, and the latter you did not experience firsthand. This term nostalgia was coined by an advertising agency It's another word for anamoya, which I think is a little bit boring. So if I had to come up with my own phrase, I would call it remix nostalgia or nostalgia the remix because it involves taking something that already exists and shaping it in a new way. Whenever people talk about revivals, reboots, reunions, anything like that, media, entertainment, cultural commentators, talk about the repurposing of old ideas to market to a new demographic segment as nostalgia, and that's where it's not. The marketing of a revival of a 90s trend, or rather a cultural object, which we'll get into later, for millennials, that's nostalgia. For Gen Z, it's nostalgia. You're capitalizing off of the fact that they were not there the first time and providing the opportunity for whatever this trend is to take on a new form. In this slide here, you'll see that nostalgia has become an entire beat in journalism coverage, which by the way, if anyone wants to quote me, I'm right here, I'm available. Here are some headlines. Relentless nostalgia is numbing our brains. From Tumblr core to 2014 core, the nostalgia loop is getting smaller and faster. Stuck in 2020, pretending it's 2014. This is one of my favorites. Some Gen Zers are nostalgic for an era of clubbing they didn't get to experience. And then the subheading is, Zoomers on TikTok are finding that nightlife in 2023 is no longer about, quote, getting crunk in the club, but that's okay. And then probably my favorite, clothes from the 2000s are vintage now. For some shoppers, that's scary. This slide also shows the meme of those Tumblr kids, which by the way, I will be including an investigative deep dive on the origin of this meme in my newsletter this week, nostalgia.substack.com, just because I'm obsessed with it. And this particular version of the meme has text over it that says, face my current reality? No thanks, I'd much rather cling to the comfort of early 2010s indie pop. And then it has the album covers from Vampire Weekend, Phoenix, Arctic Monkeys, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, the 1975 Passion Pit, and Walk the Moon. So that's relatable. The whole point here is that in most headlines, which are designed to intrigue you at best and are clickbait at worst, nostalgia is often used as a misnomer for nostalgia. I actually wrote an article about this two years ago this month. App 
aptly titled Nostalgia Versus Nostalgia and Why Both Matter in 2022. It starts where I share the story of how my understanding of nostalgia first clicked. It was when I was in Target and I saw a kid behind me in line wearing a My Chemical Romance t-shirt. I was so annoyed. I'm like, he wasn't even born when that album came out. And then I realized I was wearing a Fleetwood Mac Rumors t-shirt, which is an album that came out before I was born. This article ultimately makes the point that nostalgia and nostalgia are both important and relevant for connection, communication, and commerce. And although, yes, modalities for communication, interaction, and discovery have evolved, the act of searching for that sense of belonging hasn't, and it won't ever change. So this episode will serve as an expansion of that article. I'm gonna next share the six considerations that clarify the differences and the similarities between nostalgia and nostalgia and how they relate to connection, communication, and commerce. Here we go, we have regenerative revenue, context collapse, trend zeitgeists, retro subversion, compensatory consumption, and projection bias. So first we have regenerative revenue. Brands tap into nostalgia and nostalgia for the same reason that anybody really does anything, to make money. Capitalizing off of existing IP or intellectual property provides regenerative revenue. Going back to our MCR Fleetwood Mac story, licensing band t-shirts is an amazing example of this. Hot topic reigns supreme here with Forever 21 as a close second. If a band t-shirt is marketed as a fashion statement, it can make money whether or not the wearer of the shirt is an authentic consumer of that music. Whoever owns the IP can make money without the band actually having to make music or embark on expensive tours. On the screen, you'll see what I've selected as the top 24 bands, and it was even hard to narrow that down. The top 24 bands that I see most often on licensed t-shirts. And mind you, these are all real t-shirts that are currently being sold. So here are the artists. Beatles, Fleetwood Mac, Queen, Led Zeppelin, Def Leppard, Rolling Stones, David Bowie, The Ramones, Metallica, Nirvana, Notorious B.I.G., My Chemical Romance, The Doors, Blink-182, Guns N' Roses, ACDC, Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd, Sublime, Green Day, Slayer, Sex Pistols, Iron Maiden, and Journey. So the point is to market these shirts to a nostalgic audience, AKA people who were not alive during the band's peak of popularity. To make a band t-shirt nostalgic, it would have to be worn by an age appropriate person. For example, if you saw a 70 year old man in San Francisco wearing a tie-dye Grateful Dead shirt, one could infer that he's a deadhead and didn't just buy that shirt from Target last week. Whereas if you saw a teenage girl wearing a Led Zeppelin 1977 tour shirt, she probably got it at Brandy Melville. Even, I feel like that might be a dated reference now, but even 10 years ago, that was the case. So nostalgic band t-shirts are commodified in four ways, to express, to eventize, to aestheticize, and to ideologize. And so I've organized them here into four categories, Etsyfication, Coachellification, Yassification, and Tattooification. Let's dive in. First, we have the Etsyfication of shirts, AKA DIYing. The point here is to express yourself uniquely. Band t-shirts traditionally were just plain tees. Like if you got a tour shirt, it would be the same as everyone else's. 
Now you can get a shirt that has embellishments, rhinestones, fringe, holes, cutouts, grommets, lace-up details, basically anything you want. You can see it here in the examples. First, you have a t-shirt that has custom cassette tapes on it. So you get to pick what your favorite artists are and the Etsy seller will make you a shirt featuring the cassette tapes of those artists. Then you have a Led Zeppelin t-shirt, but it has a lace-up detail on the side. You have a Queen t-shirt in acid wash and a Nirvana baby onesie in tie-dye. What is more nostalgic than a baby wearing a band t-shirt? I love it. This is why those ladies made literally tens of thousands of dollars from friendship bracelets. You have the most valuable IP in the world right now, Taylor Swift Eras Tour, with an easy to make and sell item, these beaded bracelets. Actually, two of these ladies that kicked off the trend are from Connecticut. Anyway, that ties in with my next point, eventizing. Coachellification. The point here is event dressing and also over accessorizing. Tons of bracelets, sunglasses, hats. Maybe the photo is sepia tone or film camera inspired or featuring a desert background. Like technically you don't need all that jazz to sell a t-shirt. Like a simple e-com plain white background would do. It's just capitalizing off of social media era mainstream music festival influencer culture. In that sense, your outfit is just as important as actually going to the event. So now everyone buys new themed clothes for every concert they go to. Eras and Beyonce's Renaissance Tour are current examples of this. And here you can see examples. We have a Led Zeppelin shirt with a very large necklace, a Def Leppard shirt with a desert background, a Pink Floyd t-shirt with a car in the background symbolizing freedom and the open road. And then finally a Doors t-shirt with like an orangey sepia tone filter. Next is yassification. The point here is to aestheticize. This is basic Instagram influencer coded, Christian girl autumn adjacent, pumpkin spice latte enthusiast look and feel, where the presentation of this shirt manufactures a feminine aesthetic to appeal to women to get them to buy stuff. So this is the Utah mommy blogger wanded hair with hair extensions look or a flat lay photo or a quirky tweed Zoe Deschanel like home and lifestyle blogger with a record collection and mid-century modern furniture. You get it. This is a very do it for the gram kind of sentiment. And the examples you can see here, you have a Fleetwood Mac shirt where the girl's like cozy and in bed, Blink-182 sweatshirt, the girl's literally holding a little coffee mug, another Blink-182 t-shirt. I do think that with Travis Barker and Kourtney Kardashian being married, this has facilitated some of that audience crossover as well. Um, and then there's a queen t-shirt that literally is just a flat lay of the shirt with a little bundle of flowers next to it. It's cute. By the way, I'm not saying that I don't like any of these shirts or that I wouldn't wear any of these shirts. I'm just saying that these t-shirts have to appeal to new audiences in order for them to be sold. Okay, last category is tattooification. The point here is ideology that music is a powerful vehicle for social mobilization. What do we associate with musicians and rock stars other than sex and drugs? Tattoos. Pretty much every male model in most band 
t-shirt imagery has a full sleeve of tattoos to show that they're edgy and cool. Tattoos had obviously been around before punk subculture, but they weren't mainstream really until the 1980s. So for these bands whose peak of popularity was in the 60s and 70s, their listeners weren't tattooed in the way that they are now. For baby boomers and Gen X, getting tattoos symbolized rebellion against societal norms and was more radical, whereas when millennials grew up, at least in comparison to these past generations, they were acceptable to a much greater extent. Whereas the traditionally feminine points I mentioned have literal accessories, flowers, a coffee cup, a cozy blanket, you would see a man with a bunch of tattoos as their own kind of statement accessory to say, I'm young, I'm edgy, I'm cool, and I have good taste in music. Next is context collapse. This is when you take a cultural item out of its original context and it loses its original meaning. I feel like this is only a problem for the older generation. Like the young people don't care despite having more access to information than previous generations did. Case in point, Gen X getting mad about Gen Z's revival of flannel shirts. Here on the slide, we have Jordan Catalano from My So-Called Life. Excellent show. Best show of all time, in my opinion. And a pic of a Tumblr girly with bangs, wearing a flannel with black tights and jean shorts in the 2010s. And then finally, a pic of Lil Huddy, which first of all, I think he might be called Huddy now. And second of all, I had to Google who that was because I didn't know who that was. He was the co-founder of that LA TikTok hype house and he dated Connecticut native and maybe, I don't know if she is now, but at one time most followed TikToker ever, Charlie D'Amelio. Anyway, they're all wearing flannel and the person on Reddit goes, I honestly love seeing Gen Zers taking Gen X's 90s fashion and making it their own. And then everyone's fighting in the comments being like, this is so fake. We did it because it was just us. And it looks like they're trying to pull off a look. Someone goes, it's just posing and nostalgia, but these people weren't even alive then to have nostalgia. It's fake, very cringeworthy. Zoomers are doing what they do best, taking from the past while being completely oblivious about context and also never doing anything for any other reason than social approval, which I'm not disagreeing with any of this. I just think it's kind of funny, especially because a lot of Gen Z's parents are Gen Xers. And so we're not gonna get into generational theory today, although I have so many thoughts about that. But I think what's funny here also is that people will say, oh, Gen Z is bringing this back or so-and-so is bringing this back. And it's like, the people who are the executives at the companies start the revivals, not really the kids. It doesn't matter what kids wear because trends are cyclical. What goes around comes around. It's almost like a handoff from the generation with the most money and most authority before age obsolescence. So right now that's millennials and they're passing it off to the generation that's the fixture of youth culture. Right now that's Gen Z. And so youth culture's feelings of alienation is not new. Even with technology as a layer of complexity, this kind of superiority complex is a defense mechanism. You know, if, if a Gen Xer says to Gen Z, you don't get it, like you're stealing our flannel shirts, whatever, whatever. It's so easy for young people to be like, 
you're just old or parents don't understand. And it's about identity formation. It's a tale as old as time. Every generation does it. There was a TikTok that mentioned Gen Z being spoon-fed identities online. And I say that's just the Gen Z version of millennials cerulean principle. Remember the Devil Wears Prada movie? Andy can't discern between two belts, aka this stuff, because they look exactly the same to her. And Miranda Priestly absolutely schools her about her lumpy blue sweater. I'm not gonna read the whole monologue, but it's pictured on the screen. And the last line says, and it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. So basically we're all just kind of told what to buy and the patterns repeat themselves. It doesn't matter what generation it is. It's just one of those things where you never think it's gonna happen to you until it does. Now my favorite example of nostalgic aesthetic cherry picking, you might already know what I'm gonna say because you've probably heard me talk about it a million times. I mention it in probably every episode. I don't care, I will continue to talk about this aesthetic forever, at the very least until someone from Kari comes on my show. Anyway, the Consumer Aesthetics Research Institute coined the name Groovival, which I like to describe as an affinity and enthusiasm for the 60s and 70s from the vantage point of the 90s. Let me note that in the past, I've said this aesthetic is the 70s from the vantage point of the 90s, but that's because that's when hippie stuff fully integrated into mainstream American culture. But you know what, going forward, I will say 60s or 60s and 70s because Groovival also encompasses the 60s mod style that I love. Go-go boots, baby doll dresses, the futuristic look that would go on to inspire 90s Y2K, Andy Warhol and pop art, which I've always been obsessed with. Kari officially describes Groovival as the 1990s rehashing of 60s hippie flower power aesthetics as both a nostalgia play to boomers and an attempt to entice kids with bright psychedelic shapes and colors. You will see on the screen the 1960s hippie American Girl doll outfit that I had, which is the same amount of time elapsed as the 90s doll that came out last year. Also the American Girl magazine flower power birthday party I had, Mood Rings, Limited 2, the band D-Light, Lisa Frank, and even the third wave feminism of the Spice Girls. In the 90s, this was my entire world. Because I wasn't alive in the 60s and 70s, and because I was a child in the 90s, I didn't understand the socio-political context, ideologies, complexities, nuances, or motivations driving hippie counterculture or the original context of life in the 1960s and 70s, which in this case is a marketer's dream. They said, just buy the Lisa Frank folder and don't ask any questions. And I was happy to oblige. I also find meta nostalgia as a generation ages so fascinating. Meaning when the 90s revival began a few years ago, for me, I recognized my childhood but then my mom recognizes the revival of her childhood, which was two whole trend cycles ago. It's like your first Saturn return versus your second. Wait, speaking of the 90s and Saturn returns, did you know that No Doubt's 2000 album Return of Saturn was named that because Gwen Stefani was going through her Saturn return? According to Wikipedia, she was confused by her feelings of depression and interest in Sylvia Plath while recording the album. And she was dating Gavin Rossdale at the time, and he told her that she was going through her Saturn return. 
which is in astrology. So Saturn's orbit takes 29.4 Earth years. And in astrology, the time when Saturn returns to its position where it was when you were born, that's believed to be a period of self-evaluation and kind of like when you're deciding which fork in the road you're going to take. And so on the return of Saturn album, you'll see a lot of themes where Gwen Stefani is kind of grappling with her music career and turning 30 and having a more domestic life. Interesting. Next is trend zeitgeists. We will be discussing composition and symbolism. Let's take an object. How about an olive green utilitarian jacket? I have seven pictures here. Four are clearly from the 2010s and three you would be able to get away with today in the 2020s. But why? Composition. The reason why when trends come back they are different than they were originally is because the word trend is being used to represent an isolated cultural object. So when they say cheetah print is back, ballet flats are back, the polo shirt is back. The color red is back. Those are very vague, don't you think? The way we make sense of how we wear these trends is because of the composition of cultural objects. So it's not one isolated thing that assigns a look to a particular trend zeitgeist, AKA makes it dated. It's the hair, makeup, shoes, accessories, clothes, and lifestyle factors all rolled into one. So let's say we have this olive jacket but we add the elements of a sock bun, a white button down shirt, skinny jeans, and pointed toe cheetah print stilettos. I've stepped out of the time machine and it's 2012. How about the olive jacket with tons of bracelets, the Celine luggage tote, cuffed boyfriend jeans, and white Converse low tops. It's 2015. What about Kourtney Kardashian here? Olive jacket, otherwise all black, black top, black leather leggings, black combat boots, holding a box of just water. I'd bet my life this is 2016. Since this is an actual celebrity who makes news just from leaving the house, I looked it up and guess what? 2016. How do you like that? Now let's take that same olive jacket with a wide brimmed black hat, dark wash skinny jeans with a few small rips, and those ankle booties with a side cutout. 2018, olive jacket with black jeans, only knee slits, white Veja sneakers, and the Rebecca Minkoff chevron quilted small love crossbody that looks like a dupe of YSL's Lou bag. I'll give it a 2019 and pre-March 2020. And then the olive jacket with wide leg leather pants and the olive quilted jacket with very, very wide jeans and ugly sneakers are from the 2020s. Now, listen, are all of these years, other than the Kourtney Kardashian one, are all of those years accurate? Maybe, maybe not. Could you say, no, I wore that in 2019, not 2018. You could. Does it matter? No. Does it matter if you did or did not have an olive utility jacket? No. If you did, are you chuggy, unfashionable, old, stupid, irrelevant, obsolete, and unworthy of love if you still wear anything that I said reach its peak of popularity 10 years ago? No, <laughs> you've just experienced the chasm. The chasm is when you become old enough to witness the entire completion of a standard 20 year trend cycle. The cultural objects of your youth rather than your parents is the nostalgia play. And your generation is no longer the focal point of youth culture. 
If you're worrying about being behind the trend or out of style, you already are, and that's fine. The fashion world isn't built for you anymore. Luckily, that's also when you gain the perspective and realize that it's all bullshit and doesn't matter anyway. Isn't that freeing? You can literally wear whatever you want. Next, we have trend zeitgeist symbolism. On the screen, I've taken one cultural object, the tie-dye shirt. It's been such a mainstay in American culture over the last 50 plus years that it's evolved beyond an affiliation with hippies and now in subsequent trend zeitgeists represents a symbol for freedom. Although it originated in Asia and South America far before it was popularized in America, tie-dye became an enduring cultural symbol starting in the 1960s. Janis Joplin here wore tie-dye as an association with counterculture as an expression of freedom from the mainstream normies. Making tie-dye is a DIY, anti-commercial, anti-establishment effort with patterns that are completely distinct, unique, and difficult to reproduce. Hippies wanted people to know they not only didn't subscribe to the status quo, but they actually lived a lifestyle in direct opposition to it. That's different than tie-dye in the 1990s. Here's a still from the movie Clueless where Cher is complaining about like how she's supposed to like any of the guys in her school when they dress so badly, which I can't disagree with. This era of tie-dye is a nostalgic representation of hippie counterculture. These kids have a similar spirit of disdain for authorities that hippies did, but their freedom was from selling out and working for the man, like baby boomers did. I also think that they were expressing freedom in terms of a nostalgic civil rights movement. In these 20th century zeitgeists, there was overt cultural appropriation. Boomers with indigenous and Eastern cultures and Gen X slacker burnout skater types with black culture. Now we see that with the white Rastafarian trope in several 90s teen movies, which seems very obvious to us now where they cosplay an oppressed person when they're literally just mad their mom like caught them smoking weed or something. Which by the way, the connection between tie-dye and drugs is very interesting from LSD to weed to a glass of white wine or mommy juice. like. <laughs> It's kind of insane. That's a tangent. Okay, back to the program. In the 2010s, we have the advent of tie-dye to actually make it look like a fashion statement that could have mainstream appeal. Tie-dye is historically something very casual. You would never wear this to work. So millennials' freedom was from perfectionism, hustle culture, traditional professionalism, and the ever-elusive work-life balance. Like this is the generation who wore business casual to the club. Justin Bieber, the guy from Even Stevens, the guy from Superbad are prime examples. No, their names will not be mentioned. This sleazeball sartorial dirtbag look for men is a coastal elite thing, not something that caught on elsewhere. And it's also hype beast culture adjacent, which relates to celebrity clothing lines like Justin Bieber's, capitalizing off of supply scarcity, pricing exclusivity, and time frame urgency. And then in the 2020s, we have a refreshing return to sincerity with TikTok darling Addison Rae in a pandemic era tie-dye sweatsuit. The freedom here was from every single person having to perform and be perfect on social media. I'm not saying everyone is free of that, but I'm talking like mad happy, Emma Chamberlain, Gen Z, mental health awareness vibes. 2020 was an unprecedented time and TikTok ushered in an unprecedented version of what digital identity and authenticity could mean. Retro subversion, this one's fun. So Simon Reynolds has a book called Retromania where 
He mentions that where retro truly reigns as the dominant sensibility and creative paradigm is in hipster land, pops equivalent to highbrow. W. David Marks expands on this in his book, Status and Culture, saying, Youth raised their cultural fences on a budget, digging through bargain bins, thrift shops, garage sales, and Goodwill stores for ugly old things that will horrify adults. Youth love old kitsch because they'll never be confused for the original adopters. A true radical innovation triggers a fear of the unknown. Its retro revival is ugly in a familiar way. This is so fascinating. Hipster culture is, is very interesting to me, especially millennial hipsters. That's a whole rabbit hole we don't have time for today. So the young generation subverts the expectations of older generations. Like they'll take something that's old, outdated, useless, worthless, and they'll flip it, give it a whole new meaning, revive it from obsolescence, and likely profit of it in a way that the previous generation never could. The best depiction of this generational power struggle is from my friend Danielle. She has this great series satirically comparing Gen Z versus millennials on resale sites. So we have two examples. One is that zebra dress from prom. It says, millennials, this is a zebra print dress I wore to homecoming in 2003, $10. Then Gen Z says, vintage Y2K goth bimbo zebra print dress with hot pink accents, $40. And the other example is millennials will say, this is the dress I wore to my first communion in second grade, $20. Gen Z, vintage 90s Catholic core, coquette, flea bag, Sandy Liang inspired dress with white lace details, $80. And I think these examples are so funny, so esoteric and specific in that millennials have come to see a piece of clothing such as their homecoming dress or their communion dress as something that's obsolete, something that's dated, something that's out of style, something that they can't wait to get rid of. And Gen Z didn't have that relationship to that cultural object. And so they can take the same exact Thing, whether it's that homecoming dress or the communion dress and they can categorize these cultural objects into today's aesthetics to create a whole new meaning in turn subverting the original meaning of that cultural object okay compensatory consumption i'm obsessed with identity theory right so Compensatory consumption is a consumer behavior model, which basically means that we buy things based on who we think we are or who we want to be. So you consume things that reinforce your sense of identity, self-esteem, and feelings of belongingness, power, and control over your environment, the clothes you wear, the food you eat, how you decorate your apartment. There are endless opportunities for you to buy things to shape your reality. They're often rooted in lack, what we don't have. This is self-discrepancy an inconsistency between how you currently perceive yourself, how you wanna see yourself, and how you want others to see you. How I interpret compensatory consumption through a nostalgic and nostalgic lens is buying things to channel positive firsthand childhood or adolescent experiences, nostalgia, or buying things to romanticize living in an era perceived as simpler, more fun, or different from your own. That's nostalgia. I do this all the time. My physical media renaissance project is a great example of the nostalgic joy I experienced rebuying the Icy Blue Memorex CD boombox and CDs I had when I was younger. And then I have nostalgic joy from thrifting some of my records that came out before I was even born. I personally love nostalgia social media accounts. You'll recognize Metal from Ex-Girlfriend Shop and Nicole, aka Miss 2005, from the show. Nicole says she's using the past to bring happiness to the present, which I absolutely love. 
And Sammy and Sarah, who make McBling aesthetic-based nostalgic content, are spot on every time. Like, there's a girl you went to high school with who looks like that. And how they managed to do it perfectly, I don't know, but I really appreciate it. And finally, projection bias. In psychology, there are different biases or ways that your brain makes assumptions that may or may not be rooted in truth based on preconceived notions, lived experiences, etc. Projection bias is when we think we can predict the future, which is almost always wrong. Uh, I personally love Chuck Klosterman's book, But What If We're Wrong? And in it, he says we cannot perceive the present until it is the distant past. And so we can try to say what we think that life will be like in 50 years. We can say, oh, what's happening now will still be relevant in 50 years or we'll still be listening to these artists or whatever. And to be honest, we're probably wrong because time always changes things in ways that we cannot anticipate. Here we have some headlines. What 2020s trends will people be nostalgic about in 20 years? What's on trend for 2024? Nostalgia why nostalgia will be a key branding trend in 2024. The point that I want to make here is that nostalgia isn't a trend because it's not something that goes away. Somebody out there at all times is going to have nostalgia for some time and some other generation will have nostalgia for that same time period. Our projection bias makes us think that because trends are cyclical and people like familiar things and nostalgia is familiar, that means we know what's going to happen in the future and only time will tell. There are a few other fallacies I believe that come into play here, including the third person effect, which is the tendency to believe that mass communicated media messages have a greater effect on others than on yourself. Hindsight bias, as we say, hindsight is 2020. The appeal to novelty which is when people assume something is great because it's new and it's modern, similarly shiny object syndrome. And then finally, historian's fallacy, which is the incorrect assumption that people in the past viewed things the same way that we do now. And presentism, where present day ideas, moral standards, etc., are projected onto the past. So takeaways, how do these considerations affect connection, communication, and commerce? Trend zeitgeists and retro subversion foster intergenerational and cross-generational connection in that they inspire a rite of passage for the fixture generation of youth culture. This is why the millennial content creation niche is so popular. This population is no longer the fixture generation, so they bond with each other about the time when they were. Context collapse and projection bias explore and try to make sense of a lack of information about the past or the future. While the communication may refer to just people arguing in Reddit threads and sharing their in and out lists, trend forecasts, and predictions, or just being alarmed over article titles that remind people that they're aging, it still starts the conversation. How regenerative revenue and compensatory consumption drive commerce is more obvious because it's less about identity and ideology figuratively and more about physically capitalizing off of this perceived or desired identity through actually buying things. Ultimately, even though we can't predict the future, nostalgia and nostalgia will always ensure that the cycle of life continues.
And that wraps it up. Thank you so much for watching. I'm always open to feedback about the show so that I can make it as fun, interesting, enjoyable, and delightful as possible for you. You'll hear the outro in a second, but as a reminder, if you'd like me to present or speak on your podcast at your event for your publication, or if your org wants to collaborate on a project about this topic or any that you see on my show or website, please be in touch. If you like this episode, please consider sharing it with someone who would like it too. Thanks so much for watching and we'll see you next time. Bye. That's a wrap for this week. If you like Nostalgia, connect with me on social at Nicole Tremaglio. Subscribe to the Nostalgia newsletter at nostalgia.substack.com and follow, rate, and review on your platform of choice. Everything's linked in the show notes, including where to find out more about our guest of the week. Thank you so, so much for your support. And that was this week's episode of Nostalgia. 